If I were given the choice of doing evil to someone or betraying my conscience or else facing punishment, which would I choose? And it was very important to me that I be prepared to answer that question well. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, we're going to talk about a topic today that is uncomfortable for many, uh, in, in particular, those of us who have experienced it. Not so long ago, if I would have used the words cancel culture, people would have sort of skewed up their, their eyes and wondered, well, what on earth are you talking about, Leighton? Well, today we all know what cancel culture is. It's rampant. It's become part of our, our daily lives. For some of us, it's become life-changing, those of us who have experienced it. Well, our guest today is uh, a woman named Kaylin Ford, and she has not only experienced this, but she's she's created a, a very fascinating, very illuminating, and I think important film about this called When the Mob Came. And uh, we're going to show a clip in a minute, but I just want to set this up uh, with a description that, that Kaylin has on her website. Uh, and, and it reads as follows. She, she writes, is cancel culture a real thing? Are public shaming and deplatforming campaigns justified as a way of advancing social justice and holding the powerful to account? Or are they evidence of a creeping proto- totalitarianism. My vote would be the latter. What happens when these tools are weaponized for personal or political advantage? And how does a person rebuild after public cancellation? So let's, uh, let's watch a, a short clip from the film and then we're going to introduce, introduce our guest. What was shared was her private messages. She was engaged in a Facebook chat with somebody. The accusation was that she had said something in a private conversation that had echoed the words of white supremacists. Kaylin Ford says those Facebook messages were taken out of context. The statement did not have one word of contrition, apology, or backing down from those statements. The NDP has now started running attack ads framing the United Conservative Party as intolerant. I was utterly shocked to uh, hear of the comments um, that uh, that candidate, who was of course a star candidate for the UCP, uh, made. So welcome to the show, uh, Kaylin. It's great to have you on Grey Matter today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion, especially in talking about your film. Um, before we do that, as we always do, we're going to frame our discussion with some aphorisms. My research on it was very clear that you have an interest in uh, uh, Oriental philosophy, ancient philosophy. So the first of our quotations is from Confucius. I know I'm cheating. That's an easy one. Uh, but I know this is a big part of the, uh, the school program you developed. And uh, he wrote many things. One of them that uh, hopefully ties in here uh, reads, education breeds confidence. Confidence breeds hope. And hope reads peace. Second one is from uh, Lao Tzu, who wrote, If you want to awaken all of humanity, then awaken all of yourself. If you want to eliminate the suffering in the world, then eliminate all that is negative in yourself. Truly, the greatest gift you have to give is that of your own self-transformation. And finally, from Sun Tzu, uh, author of the famous uh, work, The Art of War, 
he wrote, the peak efficiency of knowledge and strategy is to make conflict unnecessary, perhaps by uh, creating a really interesting documentary film. So, <laughs> Caitlin, the, the film is called When the Mob Came. Uh, and uh, be But before we dive into that, um, I'd really like to hear from you about how this all unfolded. Can you give us sort of a, a, a thumbnail sketch for people? How did you become the victim of, uh, of, of cancel culture? Um, I, I suppose that it was fated in a way. Um, so I was a political candidate running in the 2019 provincial election in Alberta and um, was, I always interpreted this as a bit of a pejorative, but was frequently described as a star candidate. Um, I just imagine people saying I heard that. that. Ra Rachel, said, Rachel said that about you. How flattering, um, yeah. <laughs> I was a, a quite a high-profile candidate and um, was running in a conventionally left-wing seat against the NDP's then-justice minister, but I was polling very, very well and was, um, according at least to our, our internal polling, I was on track to beat her. And then a month before the election, um, an NDP-affiliated entity called the uh, Broadbent Institute, or Press Progress, ran an article claiming that in a private conversation years before I had, according to them, echoed uh, white supremacist or white nationalist rhetoric and basically expressed sympathy for white supremacist terrorism. This article was published three days after the Christchurch Mosque when um, 50 people were killed while at prayer in New Zealand. Um, and within hours it was getting picked up and circulating on twitter among you know journalists across the country uh my party faced pressure to um get rid of me uh, as the election call was imminent and so it took all of four hours before i was no longer a candidate um and uh, and that was just the beginning uh, mm -hmm. my resignation was taking taken as um admission of culpability somehow and rather than having the story go away, it caused people to lean into it and see it as sort of proof that the United Conservative Party really is sort of full of closeted white supremacists or something. So it remained in the national news for a month. Um, every attempt that I made to try to set the record straight uh, was shut down. Um, the, the one radio interview that I did at the time, the radio host then faced sort of a uh, attempted cancellation. Um, there was, you know, boycotts against her petitions. Uh, the mayor of Calgary was apparently on board and um, sort of supporting this effort to either get her offline or force her to apologize or get people to boycott her show. So I had no opportunity to speak in my own defense. Um, and, uh, and of course, the accusations against me were false. Uh, so it was based on a single anonymous accuser uh, who claimed that I'd said something in a private conversation that was never publicly disclosed. Well, Caitlin, you don't look or sound much like a white supremacist. I, I see you're not wearing a, a white hood today. Uh, you sound like a, you know, like a lady uh, professor at, at Mount Royal College or something. Uh, so where did people get the idea that, that you were a white supremacist? Um, well, I think they got the idea because it was advantageous to the NDP and to their acolytes and supporters to frame that story. And they published it at a time that was optimal. Um, they published it deliberately on the eve of an election call when it would have the maximum effect and when there would be no time or opportunity for me to respond effectively. Um, so in my view, this was this was. Uh, just a sort of deliberately crafted narrative on the part of my political opponents 
Um, and the effect of this, of course, well, we can get into that, but uh, it had very far-reaching effects on my life, certainly, and, and on many other people's lives. But um, I, I think there's also an element of confirmation bias there, right? If you're on the left, and particularly count yourself among the more kind of activist left, there is a tendency to vastly overrate uh, or to overestimate the kind of extreme beliefs of your opponents. And people on the right do this as well, but not as significantly as those on the left. So um, people on the right actually tend to have a pretty good idea of what their political opponents believe, whereas it's not true in the other direction. So um, it's very common for pro uh, those on the progressive left to think that their opponents really are sort of hateful, bigoted, um, and confirmation of your prejudices feels good. Um, it makes you feel that you're justified in hating other people when you see those prejudices confirmed. So it flatters us in a way when people say, uh, your opponents really are evil, I've unmasked them, doesn't this feel great? Um, so I think that that's a large part of it is one, it, this was just a, a deliberately very carefully crafted narrative that was crafted with the intent of causing harm uh, to me and to my political candidacy and to my reputation. And um, secondly, that it aligned with a lot of people's priors. And, uh, and I, so I think for that reason, the story immediately picked up steam uh, in newsrooms and elsewhere. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I wanna talk about your, your film and why you made it and, and the statement that it makes. But before we go there, I, as someone who's been through cancel culture myself, I don't wanna gloss over the human impact that this had upon you. So, so take us back to when the story broke, you're sailing along, as you say, you're doing really well, you're, you're a favored candidate. Um, and let's face it, you, you've worked very hard. You, you've had a very successful life. Uh, you've accomplished more things at a young age than, than most people do uh, in a lifetime. And suddenly you're hit like a train by this cancel culture attack, comes out of nowhere. Uh, how are you coping at that time, you know, emotionally, psychologically, and how did this impact your, your, your family, your relationships with, uh, with your, with, with the, your important people, with your, with your group and your children? How, how was that? How did you sort of weather that storm? So that I'm going to answer that question in two ways. First, I would say that this was not entirely out of the blue in the sense, and I had alluded earlier to the, the idea that it felt fated to me. And that's because I had, to this point, spent probably about 15 years, ever since I was 16 years old, um, working to oppose totalitarian communism and uh, working with asylum seekers and refugees who had fled from those kinds of systems. Um, and that's how I became interested in the study of contemporary Chinese history, for example, and 20th century totalitarian history more broadly, um, and where my fascination with the, this kind of problem of this type of tyranny. And, and, and you'd even lived in China, right, Kaylin? Oh, no, I was blacklisted very young. So, oh, okay. So I was, I've actually never been able to go to China. I, I was, oh, uh, I think that I was when I was blacklisted, if not 17. Oh. So. Um, which is, it's, it is a pity because it's a country that I, I have great admiration and respect for. Um, I just happen to think that the party that rules it is, is evil and tyrannical. Um, <laughs> On that we can agree. But I think that the, the experience of um, working with exiles and hearing their stories, uh, many of these people are, are those who had been imprisoned or in labor camps for their beliefs, for refusing to compromise their principles. 
And I think that exposure always caused me to ask myself, well, how were I, enc- were I encountered with a similar situation? How would I handle it? Um, if I were given the choice of doing evil to someone or betraying my conscience or else facing punishment, which would I choose? And it was very important to me that I'd be prepared to answer that question well. Um, and I think a lot of my philosophical uh, and literary influences are also people or characters sometimes who have faced exile or wrongful persecution or imprisonment. Um, and um, so I think that I had mentally prepared in a way for this, especially since one of part of the impetus for me to go into politics was witnessing these kinds of trends percolating in our own society. So the growing intolerance toward different ideas, um, you know, trying to sort of in some cases, suffocate truth a little bit in favor of a preferred um, uh, set of ideological commitments. And uh, I saw a number of the contemporary writers and philosophers that I liked experiencing something sort of like this. And I thought, well, if there's one area where in politics, you might have a little bit of influence to stem the tide a bit, it would probably be in education. If you can educate people to discern truth clearly, to reason, and to exercise, uh, well, yeah, to, to exercise clear reasoning so that they're not easily led um, and and um, and deceived. Well, maybe you can you can do something to arrest these trends. So, having said all of that, this was not totally out of the blue because I think at various levels psychologically, I'd always prepared myself for an event like this. And mm-hmm. you'll see in the film, and this is where the title of the film comes from. All throughout my campaign, I had a little folder on my desktop containing a series of aphorisms and dialogues and poems, um, trying to remind myself what kind of person I would like to be if I why, were in Why would anyone do that, Kaylin? Why would anybody have aphorisms? <laughs> <laughs> um, but having said all that, even though I think I tried to prepare myself, um, this was a form that I did not expect it to take. I expected right. at least the dignity of choosing which hill to die on um, and right. rather than just being sort of falsely accused. Yeah. Um, and um, and it was far worse than I thought. And it was yeah. far more protracted than I thought. So so when the mob came, uh, let's talk about this. When did you get the idea that you were going to make when the mob came? Uh, well, so um, you had asked earlier about sort of the aftermath of this, and I didn't really yeah. get into that. But very briefly, I found myself um, virtually unemployable. Um, so I applied to dozens of jobs and either no one would get back to me or in some cases I was just told that I was a reputational liability now because, um, you know, if you Google my quite unique name, it was many pages of headlines effectively claiming I was a white supremacist. Um, and so no one wanted to deal with that, even if they personally didn't believe the accusations against me. Um, so I, you know, I was, I'm the primary breadwinner for my family and this was very challenging not being able to find work for years. Um, I also had no platform to speak. So I was told by numerous editors that they could not publish my byline, um, again, with sometimes with many apologies, because some of these people knew me and liked me and knew I was not actually a terrible person. Um, and every attempt that journalists made to try to tell this side of the story ended up getting quashed for various reasons. So I had no platform and no employment. Um, but what I had was a background in documentary film. And as I alluded to in the excerpt that you just read, part of this to me was an attempt to a make a narrative sense of an experience that at many levels felt unintelligible. Um, and B to, to try to 
transmute the experience into something good. So I think, you know, suffering is actually incredibly valuable for human beings. It's an inextricable <laughs> part of the human condition. And while we can't eradicate it, we can, we can console it. Um, we can try to make it beautiful. We can try to um, allow it to purify and to temper us. And we can share it with other people in a way that may be beneficial to them. Um, and so this was sort of my attempt to do that was to, to have, to redeem the experience somehow, um, by making something that I, I hope has, um, has some positive effect. Well, it, 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 I, I know it, I know it, I know it will. I'm sure it, I'm sure it is. If only to raise awareness uh, to people about the, the effect of cancel culture on real people, because, you know, and I know you realize this, it's just people see these hit pieces and then they're on they're on to the next thing and they don't understand that every time there's a cancel culture attack there's a real pe there's a real person uh there's per sometimes a real business so you know families that are destroyed um and obviously you 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 have have come through this very well and that's to your credit but that's not necessarily true for a lot of people this the cancel culture destroys lives and uh and so i i think it's it's so important that this this film was made one question I had is I know that it takes money to make documentary films uh, with all of this vilification that you're receiving. Uh, how did you find, how did you find the money or the resources to actually make the film? Because the film has a very professional, I have to say, has a very professional look to it. The, the production values on it, I think, uh, at least to my eyes, are very, are very high. So where, where did you find the money, the support to, 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 to create such a, a well-produced film? Um, it was, I think a lot of people might have a hard time believing this. It was actually funded by the Canada Media Fund. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, they're, they're actually like... They, they made one. They made one. More than one. Right. I was actually... All of the documentaries that I've made and been involved with, uh, the Canada wow. Media Fund has been one of the major supporters. Right. So um, so they've actually... They, they do fund, you know, great Canadian content. There are other incentives in the market that... Um, sort of skew the the content that's created in a particular direction, but not all the time. And, um, uh, but it was funded initially as a 20 minute project. And then we found that you know, this was not actually possible to tell as a 20 minute film. So it, yeah. it kept growing and it took a lot longer to complete due to COVID and other kinds of delays. Yeah. So um, part of the, of what's in the film, for those who haven't seen it is uh, some political intrigue uh, within, with, just within your own party and, the NDP. You want to talk about that, that a little bit because it it has a lot of uh, has a lot of appeal, and I think will will spike interest in the film. You want to talk about uh, sort of some of that political uh, intrigue that that went on within within the film. Sure. Well, so I, I mentioned earlier that the accusations against me were based on the word of an anonymous accuser, uh, and of course, this person was not anonymous to me because for a full <laughs> he's a year, friend, right, or someone you thought was a friend. At one point, so but for a full year prior to um, my sort of successful cancellation, he had been trying to get me cancelled, um, uh, and sort of cycling through various types of allegations to see, I think, just to sort of see what would stick. Um, so this was a person who I'd met at a political event a couple of years prior. Um, he had then moved out to Calgary, which is where I'm originally from. He was hoping to run for office um, and found that the political world was not entirely hospitable or open to his ambitions, um, partly because of a kind of reputation he had obtained. Yeah, sort of a Machia Machiavellian type. He's quite a 
a, a number of the people we interviewed in this film described him in those terms. Yeah. Um, and uh, whereas I was recruited by Jason Kenney to run for the United Conservative Party, and this was something that prompted a lot of jealousy. So um, at that point, he kind of turned on me and started trying to find ways to sabotage my um, my political career and and reputation more broadly. So uh, just a very, very brief high level recap. Um, he started by claiming that I had made false accusations of sexual harassment against another political candidate when no such thing had ever taken place. Mm-hmm. So you think me, you know, false me too accusations are harmful to the careers of men. But if mm. men in a sort of male dominated field think that a woman is prone to making false accusations, that's very damaging to the woman's reputation and to her career as well. So that's where he started. Um, he then he purchased my internet domain name. Um, he sent out, uh, he purchased Google attack ads on searches of my name. Um, he would fabricate quotations and attribute them to me and then buy Google ads to promote fabricated quotations. He took over the board of directors of my local constituency association uh, where I was running to try to control the board of directors. Um, he uh, had them sign a letter that he wrote accusing me of fraud. And then he didn't sign the letter himself and he sent it to the media anonymously to invite them to report on um, claims that you know this board of directors was up in revolt against me for fraud. Um, and then promoted that article by with fake Google ads. Um, he sent out pseudonymous emails to all of my electors doing the same kinds of things, accusing me of fraud, making up quotes and attributing them to me. He filed a false police report claiming I assaulted him. It's just um, diabolical, really. And and the yeah. thing that finally, and, you know, would then tell journalists that I was going to be investigated and arrested for assault. Um, and none of this really stuck until he claimed that I was, you know, essentially a sort of closeted white nationalist. Right. And there's a scene in the documentary when you finally uh, confront him. There's a telephone conversation. Uh, what was that like? And, and, and how, was he apologetic or how, how did he answer you? So that, that was quite early. That was, uh, was sort of the last um, real conversation that I had with him was right after I discovered that he had made the first accusation, sort of claiming that I had made false ac- um, claims about sexual harassment. Um, and it was the, you know, the one and only time that I've recorded a phone call without the other party's knowledge, because I, I'd sort of, by this point, um, caught on to what he was doing and realized yeah. that I would, I would probably, you, you, you have to sort of use those ta- tactics, don't you, to protect yourself? Well, which is unfortunate because yeah. I have a kind of cultivated guilelessness, right? I, I don't try to be cunning or anticipate attacks on myself. Um, but at this point I, it seemed like I needed to have some collect some evidence to make sure that I, you know, that he couldn't then spin a, another yarn about this. Um, but, um, you know, there's a, there's a tragic dimension here. I think this is, I think he represents a kind of cautionary tale about how you can end up destroying yourself through envy of, of others. Um, and that was what I took away from that phone call was that this is a person who almost didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, I think it's a very sad story, uh, in the end. So, so this has been a, a really illuminating conversation with you, Kaylin, and I'm so glad that we've had this time to learn more about you and your uh, your cancel culture experience and, and also your films. Um, uh, the, we're at the part of the show where we close off with something called the reading list, 
I did warn you we were going to go here. For but for you, for someone like you, I think the tough part is actually narrowing down uh, because obviously you're very well read. Um, I, I've chosen a couple that that are probably on your bookshelf, um, and then I'm going to let you. I'm going to go first, and then let you have the last word. Um, the, the first one that I've chosen is uh, the Analects of Confucius. Uh, and uh, so this is a classic book of quotations and discussions by uh, Chinese philosopher Confucius. These these uh, these things that he wrote were are really timeless. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, there's a book called The Art of War. Um, but I thought of The Art of War a lot when I was watching your documentary. The Art of War is uh, described here as a timeless classic that has stood the test of time for over 2,500 years, written by a legendary military strategist Sun Tzu, it's the ultimate guide to winning any battle, whether it be on the battlefield or in the in the boardroom. Uh, and so uh, those are my two selections, uh, inspired somewhat by uh, your the path of your education, Kalen. So uh, do you have have some ideas, a website or books that that you could point people to and that you'd want to recommend to people taking in the podcast? So I would say for anyone who is experiencing a sort of that state of thrownness and loneliness and um, is feeling kind of the injustice of the world that Boethius is, um, his consolations of philosophy is will be one of your best friends. Um, the, the book, as I had mentioned, is uh, I frame it around Plato's Gorgias dialogue, which is just a beautiful, hilarious dialogue. It's best if you read it out loud, actually, but... Um, but it's it's both very funny and very profound. And I'll say my if I can pick just one more, um, absolutely one more that shows up in the book. I echo your Analects recommendation, so I'll add to it. Um, Virgil's Aeneid was also oh. one of the first books that I read, sort of post cancellation, and um, he's a, a character that I love. And that that's more of my aspirational identif literary identification. So yeah. Well, isn't it remarkable that uh, these works that were written thousands of years ago are so still so poignant and so relevant to what we're experiencing today? It's, it seems the you know the more things uh, change, they, the more that they they stay the same. And the, you know the human experience really, in a lot of ways, despite what we hear about technology and the internet and uh, you know artificial intelligence, really the things that we struggle with. The things that we have to overcome, both within and without ourselves, are really timeless. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's great that that uh, that you, you're looking back, and I. This is why we have the reading list to want people to understand. You know, these books and these poems, uh, they're so relevant and they're so great, and they and there's so much wisdom there, uh, and that and that, that it really is joyful and enriching to be able to look back to them and to uh, and to experience them. So, said thank you for those selections. Uh, Kaylin, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you a little bit here. Wish you much success with your lawsuit and with your charter school endeavor and everything that you're doing. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for being our special guest here today on Gray Matter. Well, thank you. 